scripture this morning comes from 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Before we read that, will you join me in a prayer for illumination? Heavenly Father, you purchased our souls with a price so that we could live in love and freedom. Humble our hearts this morning and let us hear your word and be changed by it. Mold us to be more like you for your glory. Praise be to Christ. Amen. So I will be reading 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 17, 23, and 24, and 35. Verse 17. Only let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him, and to which God has called him. This is my rule in all the churches. Verses 23 and 24. You were bought with a price. Do not become bondservants of men. So, brothers, in whatever condition each was called, there let him remain with God. Verse 35. I say this for your own benefit, not to lay any restraint upon you, but to promote good order and to secure your undivided devotion to the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to Christ. Thank you, Meg. If you're familiar with Corinthians, if you have it open in front of you, you know that Paul uh, is shifting to answer a question that they wrote to him. And specifically, they're asking him questions about marriage. But the longer I looked at this passage, the more I realized that Paul, like Jesus, um, is using their question to talk about something um, that he wants to talk about, that he thinks of as a broader and more important question. Namely, that as a follower of Christ you have the opportunity to serve him in the community that you find yourself. So the the notes, if you are following along, say we're called into his service because though they're asking questions about marriage, what, what Paul is talking about is your service to the Lord and how circumstances, specifically the circumstances of marriage, but also employment, he talks about in the middle of the verse, affect that service. Paul talks a couple of times about how the fact that he is not married means he has a little bit more time and energy to serve the Lord. And he, he talks about it in a couple of different ways throughout the passage. You'll notice, if, you, if you've read this before, you notice that sometimes Paul says it's a command from the Lord. And sometimes he says, this is kind of my opinion to encourage you. And that's because he's actually quoting Jesus in verses 10 and 11 of chapter 7, which is really interesting because he didn't have the Gospels yet. So this letter is probably written about 15, at least years before Mark, and even more before Matthew and Luke and John. So how did he have that? It reminds us that these people were all in conversation with each other, that the apostles were teaching people the things that Jesus had said, and because of the ways they were trained, they memorized those things. The interconnection of the scriptures is part of the reason that we know that they're trustworthy. So when he says, I have a command from the Lord, he's quoting Jesus, who he opposed and then supported after Jesus had a very firm conversation with him on a road to Damascus. And I say that because as I was studying this, and I ended up reading 2 Corinthians a little bit this week because um, 
If you're familiar with this letter, you know that Paul's relationship with the Corinthian church was very tumultuous. Um, it was a very uh, pagan city. And so most of the people who became followers of Christ were living very wildly as we would esteem it. He probably wrote them four letters. And the fact that we don't have all four of them indirectly reminds us of how trustworthy the scriptures are. He references one here, and then after uh, two of the letters and before 2 Corinthians, Paul wrote them and said, you need to repent to me. And they did. And it was lovely. But the reason that we don't have those letters is, by the end of the first century, the books that we call the New Testament, the 27 letters, were being passed around as Christian scriptures. And the other letters were not considered useful to the whole church. So the pastors and the regular attenders of the church and the apostles and the second generation of apostles, people like Polycarp, looked at these letters and determined which ones were useful and began passing them around. So even though we don't have the letter from the Corinthians to Paul, which is very important because that's exactly what he's responding to in chapter 7, we know a whole lot because of the way the text interacts with one another and that reminds us that it's a trustworthy book. Paul talks about uh, the realities of being single in 1 Corinthians 7. He talks about some of the realities of those who have lost a spouse to death. He talks about some of the realities of being engaged. He calls it betrothed. Christians married to non-Christians. What to do if you're abandoned in marriage. But 1 Corinthians 7 is not written to help us address all those questions. Paul's uh, the, the, the force behind him answering these questions is you have the wonderful opportunity to learn to serve God in all of life and with the people that he's put into your life, which sounds, I hope, like basic Christian life. Because if it does sound basic that you get to love the people that God has put into your life and you get to serve God with all of your life, then it's encouraging even as we're trying to follow multiple trains of thoughts and, and multiple um, arguments that Paul's making. One of the reasons I call this series the not-so-great letters is Paul's not making one sustained argument like he is in the book of Romans or even the book of Galatians. Although Galatians is a really interesting partner to the Corinthian church because their problems were so different. We are called into his service. And our service to him is influenced by our circumstances. Right? I have a 16-year-old. She is an excellent driver, but she needs time in the car. That's a circumstance that affects my life most of the time. You're doing great. I have a one-year-old. That changes my circumstances and affects how and when and what I decide to do in addition to my job and time with friends and family and things like that. And when we talk about Christian service... And I know I'm the one giving the sermon right now, so bear with me. It, it just can sound boring. But in God's hands, over the course of our life, it's beautiful and profound. Some of you are close with Bruce Dobby, a longtime member of this church. A lovely, lovely man. And four of our members got up and spoke at his uh, service And all of them talked about his commitment to greeting people at church. And greeting people for some of you is not like it's easy. Others of you would never want to do that. But we could all think for just a second, it's not a big deal. First of all, Bruce started 
I just learned this. Because when the uh, church was going through the process to hire me, the denomination asked them to go through a process to learn about themselves. And they learned that at the time, the reputation was very unwelcoming. Which I think is interesting, because I think the heart of this church is very welcoming. But Bruce decided, well, I'm going to greet people. I'm going to do what I can to change that. In addition to that, he learned that people coming to this service, the 1030 service, will often walk in through the hayloft, because they've never been to the building. They don't know that there's a big parking lot and a giant octagon on the other side. And they walk in, and they see all cars stopped and no one walking in, so they wonder if they're in the right spot. They come in, and people are either leaving or talking, and so they can tell church is not about to start, and they're, they're confused. Do you remember the first time that you went anywhere that you didn't know where you were going? So Bruce would sit on that bench right outside the hayloft, and anyone that wasn't positive where they were going, he would stand up and greet them and welcome them and make sure they knew where they were going. The things that we esteem as little in God's hands are profound and good and part of our service to him. In the middle of chapter 7, verses 25 through 31, Paul kind of talks poetically, and this happens in, in almost all of his letters and in almost all of the books of the New Testament that I'm aware like I'm aware of all of the books, but I didn't go through every verse, that there's an urgency to acting like a follower of Christ. And in my opinion, this is one of the vaguest versions of that, verses 25 through 31, but Paul's reminding them to go ahead and act like Christians. He's motivated as a, their spiritual father who helped found the church, baptized a few of them, to go ahead and love and serve God where they are. So while 1 Corinthians 7 does talk about being single and being betrothed and being married and, and being a widow or a widower and divorce and being married to a non-Christian, the point is to motivate Christians to love and serve those who are in their life right now. Paul wants to redirect them from their questions back to service of God. All of these questions need wisdom. All of them need um, the rest of the counsel of Scripture to know how to live Christianly in light of those circumstances. All of them need some self-knowledge. You need to know yourself. I'll, I'll look at a passage in just a second, um, the beginning of 1 Corinthians 7. It requires all those things to actually apply. Now, in saying that, uh, last week we ended up talking about uh, sexuality a little bit, and here's why. It's in 1 Corinthians 6. Someone asked me, uh, what must have happened in the church for me to preach on that? And, and I said, I preached on it because we're walking through the book of Corinthians. And someone emailed me about something that was unclear in the, uh, in the sermon, and we had a really good dialogue about it. The reason I'm saying that now is our denomination has done a lot of work to address the questions of singleness, divorce, and remarriage. And if you get on their website, you will have a hard time finding the papers, because I did, and I'm a pastor in the denomination. If you'd like to read what our denomination has done, just email me, and I'll send you the paper. I went through the website yesterday, and I was like, how come I can't find this? And the reason that I'm mentioning it is because 1 Corinthians 7 alludes to it, but is not trying to answer every question. In the same way that when Jesus talked about... Um, marriage and divorce, you cannot take especially one set of his teachings and come up with a comprehensive guide 
to all of those questions. But with the whole counsel of Scripture, especially including Jesus' words in 1 Corinthians 7, we learn a lot about the with God life in those circumstances. We're called into the service in this short time with our people. If you have your Bible, I'm looking at verse 1 in chapter 7. Now concerning the matters about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. But because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another except perhaps by agreement for a limited time, that you may devote yourselves to prayer, but then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. The Corinthians were asking, what does my marriage look like now that I'm a follower of Christ and was not a few years ago? And their perception of religion is is different than ours. Theirs was more... um, Temple worship and less Western uh, Judaism, Islam, and Christianity are similar in a sense of there were people of the text, not so much of ritual, though rituals matter. And so they were asking questions that would seem wild to us. But with that, Paul reminds those of us that are married that that's our first neighbor. So if the Christian life is love God and love neighbor, that's your first neighbor. And if you are married... Do not deprive your spouse of touch, talk, time. And that requires self-knowledge. That requires grace. That requires listening. And it's challenging, isn't it? And if you need help, there are some folks here that would sit with you. Some of you might need help beyond Friendship, uh, because my ACE score is significantly higher than my wife's adverse childhood experiences. She has a zero. She's failing miserably. Mine's a seven. It's sort of a joke. But also that is my score and hers is zero. I have needed outside help to deal with my own stuff so that when I try and find her, I'm not asking her to fix all that stuff. Now I know that you're all more mature than that and you don't ever bring past pain into conversations with your spouse. But it's worth thinking about. It's worth praying about. It's worth learning to be honest about. It's worth revisiting days later when you realize you said something out of pain that had nothing to do with that moment. I'm actually thinking of times I did that three times in the last month with with friends, not even with my wife, though the point is about for those of us that are married. And I got to go back and apologize and... Two of the times needed to explain where it was coming from, and we probably are better friends because of it. For those of us that are married, it is challenging to find our spouse sometimes. And it's worth it. That's your first neighbor. Don't deprive them of your time, your words, touch. This is the kind of passage that in my youth was used um, very interestingly, because I think it's almost the opposite of the point, to elevate marriage as though it's the ultimate Christian experience. And yet, if you've read Corinthians, does Paul marginalize those who are not married? No. He himself was single. Jesus also was single. But Paul reminds them that by being single, he has more time 
to give to Christian service. And the reason that I bring that up is not to encourage or discourage those of you that are single with respect to the question of marriage. It's to encourage you that the Bible sees all people as made in the image of God. And Paul is very deliberate that when you have less circumstantial um, obligations, you have more to give. He pivots and talks about uh, bond servants, which at the time those were... um, Indentured servants is maybe a way to talk about it. Bond servant is the Greek word. It's very, very different than um, slavery that we think of in the United States. And Paul kind of vacillates on it a little bit. He goes a little bit back and forth on how they're supposed to respond. And we don't know if Paul's thinking about the end times as, as directly as he is in other places. We do know that uh, Christians and Jews were being persecuted in, in different places, though not in Corinth. And so he says... You are to continue along. Each one should remain in the condition in which he was called. I'm in verse 20. Were you a bondservant when called? Do not be concerned about it. But if you can gain your freedom, avail yourself to the opportunity. Sometimes it has been said that the Apostle Paul was pro-slavery. And first of all, it's absurd. Second of all, it forgets the way that the New Testament was written. Paul's writing to a group of about 30, 35 Christians. And he's expecting them to be encouraged for a few years. The Holy Spirit knew that this text would benefit us also. But the trajectory that he longs for is for them to be freed. And he mentions it here. Philemon a little more directly. Why am I telling you that? So that you can be encouraged by this text, which wants you to not only love the first neighbors in your life, but also those that you work with. And you will need, and if you're retired, that is a full-time job, and you work with people to be retired, especially this year. Am I right? I thought he gets some amens for that. It's tough. I have a lot of friends who are retired and it takes work. You will need all of your Christian tools to love well not only your first neighbors but the people you end up working with. You will need to repent to them at times both to ask their forgiveness and to act differently in the future. And if they are not a Christian it's going to be weird. But if you are that's your response when you hurt them. About the second year after our uh, esteemed youth director was here, Will Downey, he said to me, I need you to not say I don't care anymore. Because he's so good at solving problems. He's so deliberate and administratively fantastic. He would come to me with a problem and I'd be like, I don't care. You've got this. You're awesome. And he said, I need you to stop saying that. It does not help me. So now when he comes to the problem, all right, are we workshopping this? You want just some feedback? Like, But that's repentance. And if you think repentance to a non-Christian in the workplace is weird, how about repentance when you're the lead pastor of a church to someone over 10 years younger than you? It's humbling, and it's what we do in relationships. So in the middle of the chapter, when Paul is talking about bond servants and how they're to act Christianly, I think that has a word for us also. When Paul talks about the Christians who are married to non-Christians in Corinth, that was an even more regular challenge because of the way that their spouses were probably living with the temples and the foods being sacrificed to idols and the way that all went. And we'll talk about that next week um, because it's more specific. But it was, I think, even more challenging in terms of how do we do these things as a married couple? In the midst of that, Paul's talking about the opportunity for our neighbors who are not followers of Christ to become Christians. So I want to ask you, are you able to pray for your friends who are not Christians?
What I've needed to do is imagine a scenario where faith could become more lovely to them and then pray that way. Because it has become, over time, more challenging for me to pray because I'm becoming better friends with some of them and some were further from one another. But as Paul goes back and forth about the realities, he's reminding us that we have this lovely opportunity to befriend humans in our life and those that are not yet Christians to pray for them and to be good friends to them. We are called into his service in this short time with our people and our calling. Paul is talking about how the more circumstances in our life, the less we're able to give him undivided attention. And he's talking about both the Sunday morning serving the local church and throughout the week. Hopefully this is old information to you, but God has given you hands and a mind and money and resources that are for his glory and the good of his church and the good of neighbor. And those are limited, and yet that's what they're for. Your limits are part of that. It's another thing that Christians can get wrong is by pushing and pushing and pushing for more service and more money and more doing and more activity burn people out. Your limits are always part of your calling. But you've been given a mind and resources and abilities that are for serving God and his kingdom. That's what Paul's getting at in chapter 7 as he goes back and forth talking about marriage and singleness and work. And calling is, is one of those things that I think about all the time and I wonder what it's like to listen to another sermon where it comes up because it comes up throughout the New Testament. But let it be a reminder to you that the gospel is not only salvation, which is a very sweet part of it. Our hearts at rest because of the work of Jesus. It is also a calling from meaninglessness into purpose. And as small as the activities and and generosity and, and the things we do around here can seem, in His hands, they are given beautiful, eternal purpose. Would you pray with me? Father, we long to receive your care so deeply. We long to integrate the gospel so well that we love you and those you have put into our lives well. As we go back to our homes and places of business, would you enliven our spirits? with our words and with our minds to serve you undividedly. Lord, there are a lot of challenges as we would esteem it. We ask that we hold those to you for your wisdom and instruction, for your care that you might grow us up as your children. Amen.